Hi, everybody, and welcome to a new segment on Investing Experts, where we're taking a seeking alpha analyst that has a bullish thesis on a stock and a seeking alpha analyst that has a bearish thesis on a stock. And we're dissecting that stock from those two perspectives and end up getting even further along in our understanding of the stock than a simple bull bearish perspective because the conversation we have along the way, I think, edifies many points for all participants and listeners, I think, can add their own conclusions and takeaways. And please put in the comments either on the podcast platform you're listening to or on Seeking Alpha, any questions you have for the analysts, and let's continue that conversation together. So today we are talking about 3M with Cashflow Hunter, who's been on the podcast before, sharing his elucidations on stocks and the market. As listeners know, he runs an investing group on Seeking Alpha called Catalyst Hedge Investing. And he shares the stage today with Brett Ashcroft Green. They get into 3M. Cashflow Hunter's been on the show before talking about why he's bearish on 3M. He continues that conversation today with Brett, who you may have guessed is bullish on the stock. And all Investing Experts podcast episodes are available with full transcripts on Seeking Alpha. Also, any article mentioned in this podcast will be available on the show notes which is in the episode description on whatever podcast platform you may be listening to. And if you're invested in the markets, I hope you are listening to our flagship podcast, Wall Street Breakfast, which runs every morning and gives investors a robust taste of what to expect that day in the markets. And this week, we're launching an afternoon edition of the podcast. So those searching for insight in the middle of their trading and investing day, look no further than Wall Street Breakfast podcast. I promise you, you won't be disappointed by the depth of investing news reporting insights, and analysis. Hope you enjoy today's conversation on 3M. We've got more bull bear cases coming at you. Looking forward to bringing them to you. Enjoy today's conversation. Okay, Cashflow Hunter and Brett, welcome to Investing Experts Podcast Talking 3M. Super happy to have you both on the show and super happy to uh, get this bull bear segment started. So thanks for coming on the show to you both. Thank you, Rena. Appreciate it. My pleasure, as always. Brett, I'd love it if you shared with our audience your journey to investing, to Seeking Alpha, what, what brought you to invest in general, and then also to write about investing? So, I mean, I've, I've been involved in finance and real estate for the past, uh, I guess, couple of decades, um, working on the private side of debt financing. And, you know, I, I never worked really on the equity side. So, but it's always been a personal passion of mine, investing in real estate, rental properties, and then uh, into stocks in general. Um, so, as one of the the older kind of millennial generation folk, you know the 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 fire movement is a big thing for us as far as uh, financial independence and retiring early. You know you can't work hard forever, uh, so that's always been my motivation is just to be frugal, save, invest everything I can, uh, both in rental properties and stocks. And you know I've I've done well so far, uh, thankfully, and you know getting to that point where you start feeling financially independent and uh, getting into seeking alpha is, is, was important. I think to just kind of express some of my idea, ideas and being able to use the tool set seeking alpha has 
Uh, everything's really convenient. I have to say all right there in one spot where I can click on it, cycle through SEC filings, look at kind of the consolidated data for income statements, cash flow statements, balance sheets, and all those things. Uh, it's it's really cool. And every time I have an idea, you know, if I write an article, a lot of that is me working through my own kind of thought process to see whether or not I want to buy, sell, or hold something. Brett, I'd love to hear from you what your general thesis is on 3M and maybe if it's a typical stock that you would be looking at. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a person who hunts through companies that display that quality of being, you know, Good management combined with a high earnings yield. One of the places that I really like to to screen through is Joel Greenblatt's Magic Formula. So I've using it for many years. It's very hard to see a dividend king actually pop up on there. And 3M has been consistently on there when I screen for mid and large cap companies. Um, so that really stood out to me starting going through the screeners, looking at it being an all-time dividend, you know, high dividend yield. Uh They've been paying dividends for 64 years. Uh, we got price to book pretty much looking like close to an all-time low. Price to earnings, same thing, almost all-time low. We're looking at, uh, looks like around 2013 prices on this stock. It's the litigation issue surrounding 3M is is a big deal. It's creating the opportunity, but I think that uh, you know the risk reward ratio is is leaning more towards. Uh, being reward than it is for risk at this point. So, cash flow hunter would what would you say? I guess is is your main thesis. And if you want to counter any of Brett's initial points, I'm I'm happy for you to include that in there. I don't disagree with any of the uh, what you know he just stated on the uh, statistics as they are right now. My issue with the company. Uh, other than, and I might disagree with quality of management. Um, you know, I, I don't see this business as, um, as management's done a spectacular job with really any of their business lines. If you look at uh, revenue growth um, and returns on, on invested capital uh, for, you know, for going back you know, for the company, you know, none of them are particularly stellar. but. I really care more about what the business line is going to be looking like going forward. And uh, everything I see of uh, this company is that these uh, liabilities they face are massive and are fundamentally going to degrade uh, at the very least the earnings power of the company going forward if not potentially put it into severe distress. Yeah, Brett, what would you say to the to the massive liability issue? Uh, yeah, I mean, in my article, I kind of tried to comp that out doing like a, a typical uh, Warren Buffett-esque owner earnings model and trying to incorporate about a billion dollars into having liabilities for paying out between the PFAS and also the earplug case. Um, that would be equivalent to about $30 billion, comping it to like the Johnson Johnson case where it would be put in a trust and then paid out over a 25 year period. Uh, and then taking into consideration, you know, their, their taxable income is about 20%. I think the net effect would be about a billion dollars a year, uh, paying out, you know, as far as the reduction 
um, what we're going to see in drop to the bottom line. But also their margins are being compressed right now, I don't believe, because it's a big management issue. If we look at the actual cost of revenues for a lot of companies, especially when you're dealing with raw materials. I mean, in, in essence, 3M is also a company that deals in petrochemicals, right? And and a lot of plastics and such uh, are going to be highly dependent on, um, you know, oil and oil byproducts. So we're looking at, let's see here, before COVID 2018, we have a cost of revenue of about 50%, and it's jumped up TTM to about 57 or so. Uh, so I, I think with you know, inflation being what it is, a commodity super cycle, as that tends to deflate more in the macro perspective of what's going on, I think that a lot of those problems are going to resolve themselves along with, you know, better international relationships, uh, especially, you know, in the Asia Pacific. Uh, we have Anthony Blinken over there trying to make good with Xi Jinping right now. 60% of revenues come from outside the U.S. So it's not just a U.S. story. And then if we're looking at interest rates from a macro perspective as well, you know, they, they state clearly in their 10K that the strengthening of U.S. dollar is really affecting, uh, you know, currency spreads and those kind of things. So when they're they're taking in income from other countries. So as we start to pause rates, lower rates, uh, and, you know, our currency is not so hot. Uh, I think that's going to also uh, enhance their margins as well. Cashflow Hunter, what would you say to Brett's bullish take on on that? I have to respectfully disagree on the uh, the margin the margin issue. Um, their their margins started degrading uh, in 2019, so that was the year before COVID came mm -hmm. along. Um, that's also the year that their returns on invested capital, their returns on on assets, uh, their returns on uh, basically any mar any return ratio started declining. So uh, I think it's very hard to argue that uh, we were in a uh, super cycle, uh, either in inflation or in any kind of commodity input or labor uh, cost uh, during that during 2019. Um, on top of that, um, several other competitors who you know you would argue went through you know had basically faced similar uh margin pressures um show uh no real margin deg degradation during this time period uh let's also uh remember that you know these guys um uh they they have a, a healthcare division which is reportedly you know supposed to be a higher margin business then there's just a typical, uh, uh, you know, the the, uh, the consumer business or or their uh, um, or the, the the other two industrial businesses um, that really ought to be insulating that uh, the other businesses that experience those those margin issues and it it has not. Um, on top of that, you know, I I think that a lot of people. Um, do forget or they they don't look at uh you know the fact that you know this is a company that has spent quite a bit of money net cash on acquisitions over the past 10 years uh they did 3 billion dollars worth of acquisitions in uh, 2015 they spent another net billion dollars on acquisitions in 2017 they spent another 5 billion dollars this is cash uh, they spent on, uh, on acquisitions in 2019, and yet 
uh, EBITDA has not really materially, uh, has not gone up really at all uh, over that time period. Uh, you know, EBITDA in 2016 was eight and a half billion dollars. Um, you know, EBITDA in 2022 was eight and a half billion dollars. Uh, and last year it was, it was, uh, you know, on a trailing 12 month basis, I believe it's, or they've guided to about $8 billion for, for this year. So um, that doesn't, you know, if you've spent net, you know, north of $5 billion on acquisitions in the past 10 years, cash, forget about shares. Uh, I don't think you should be standing in place on an EBITDA basis. Um, and I think that, the uh, on the liability front, if we're talking uh, that thirty billion dollars, let's say that is going to be the ultimate uh, liability split between the two. Um, I don't think that that is that thirty years is going to be the payout term. Um, I think that's that's pretty uh, hopeful. I mean, that is a a best case scenario. Well, I, I put twenty. I put sorry. I put twenty-five years kind of as an estimation, and then kind of decrease it if it's one point two billion by the the tax rate. Okay, I mean, well, it, it, on a present value basis, there's not a material difference between twenty-five years. Not and much, yeah. Um. So I I look at that and I say, okay, well, that is a that is an aspirational uh a time you know hopeful uh, uh liability pay, payout period. First, it seems that the uh, settlement with the multi-district liability case uh, that was negotiated by Camor slash DuPont Corteva um, is that the payment will be made up front. So that is, um, you know, perhaps, you know, that's only about, I believe it's a billion, uh, a billion two uh, split between the three companies, the not evenly. But I don't know why the MDL uh, for uh, lit settlement for 3M, if that if the payment from Camor uh, Dupont is going to be upfront, why their payment of quote unquote at least ten billion dollars uh, would not be uh, payable upfront? Although it's entirely possible that there could be some sort of payment structure. The problem with the announcement that they made is that there's no detail in it. Uh, it's a very odd announcement. You make a detail of you make to make an announcement of oh we're we've we have the settlement of at least ten billion dollars, um, and they don't say you know what percentage of of the uh, of the um, the plaintiff base is going to accept it what the hurdle rate for the plaintiff base to accept it. Um, and uh, because they said they're opt-outs, well, okay, they're opt-outs. So that means that the, the bigger water utilities that are gonna afford to pursue a lawsuit on their own won't continue to do so. And how many of those guys can opt out before the company says, okay, well, we don't have a settlement. Uh, and then lastly, uh, there was a PFAS uh, conference last week hosted by Bank of America. And I think it's important to note, uh, I mean, I knew this before the conference, but I, I think a lot of other people perhaps didn't, and, and the conference did a good deal, good job elucidating everything uh, about the liabilities, was that those li the liability of the MDL settlement of at least $10 billion, again, 
is really not very much, doesn't cover very much, doesn't cover any of the state's attorney general's liabilities. It doesn't cover any personal liability, uh, personal injury liability, any personal property liability, and it won't cover uh, the Superfund liability uh, that I believe is very likely to come through uh, once the FDA gets its hazardous material designation for PFAS in um, in uh, in February uh, of 2024 at the latest. Um, so, you know, there you go. And, um, you know, I also am not entirely sure why the uh, earplug liability would be paid out over a significant period of time. If you look at a lot of the uh, the payments into trusts that were made by the asbestos manufacturers, those were not paid out uh, over 30 years. Those were paid out into a trust from bankruptcy over time. If you look at the opioid liabilities, uh, those were not paid out over 30 years. Um, Endo currently is in process of trying to renegotiate its opioid payment liability. Uh, it agreed to a billion and a half dollars and uh, not Endo, uh, Malincrot, I apologize. Uh, Endo had a negotiated settlement of $200 million, but Malincrot had an opioid negotiation that they negotiated uh, with, you know, a, a very large uh, uh, plaintiff base of a um, billion and a half dollars, I believe. And that was going to be paid out over like three or four years. So everything I see, it points to a much shorter time period. Sure, fair, fair points. I mean, just quickly, I, I just don't think there's, as uh, Cashflow Hunter said, there's not a whole lot of detail specifically, especially with the PFAS case, except for comps that we have that are much smaller payouts than what's being tossed around for 3M. Um, I mean, I don't want to say it's hopeful, but I would think at a certain point when you have a company like this, this is so important to not just U.S., industrial infrastructure, but international industrial infrastructure, that it becomes a risk to the U.S. economy if you try to say we want $10 billion up front, which is something where you could force an entire company to go into reorganization. But that's also the perfect bear case for the company is to say, hey, you know, look at the comps there. We, we look historically, a lot of these companies have had to pay out, you know, much faster than this amount of time. The reason why I was comping to something totally unrelated in the Johnson Johnson's case is because I believe Johnson Johnson is more of a similar company to 3M being how important they are to the U.S. economy. I think judges would err on the side of caution uh, because I think they would know what would happen if they really forced a company like 3M to you know, go in and fund some sort of a trust uh, of $10 billion. Let's, let's even say if it's all $30 billion, if, if both cases end up wanting them to fund that trust within a period in less than a decade, uh, you know, you could put 3M, you know, under, and I don't think that any judge wants to do that. It's just a bigger, I don't think any judge cares. you don't think any judge cares. I, I don't know if it was California, I would say maybe something. I know that uh, the PFAS is being held in the Northern district of Florida. So I hope that, you know, they air on South the South Carolina. Side. Yeah. So I, I, I believe that they wouldn't do that, but that's just my own personal opinion. Um, I, I, uh, I I just look, if you're looking at history, uh, first of all, I don't think that the talc settlement for, for Johnson Johnson was ever in any risk of ever putting that company into bankruptcy. Uh, you know, what did they settle for? $15 billion, $9 billion. I don't even know. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, that's half 
of what Johnson and Johnson's EBITDA is every year. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's, uh, let me just look at its free cash flow. It's one year of free cash flow for, if it's, if it's, if the number was $16 billion, that would be less than one year of cash flow for Johnson and Johnson. It's, it's uh, almost meaningless from that perspective. And yeah, that, that's not the argument though. I'm just saying like, exactly levered free cash flow for, if you're talking about for 3M, you know, is only about three and a half. So it's a, it's a much bigger yeah. risk to three. Yeah, absolutely. It's a much bigger risk to 3M. So, you know, if, if Johnson Johnson even got that kind of a payout structure, I'm just saying, would we want, and, and, you know, I guess your, your assumption is that judges historically don't, don't care about these things, but is yeah. 3M, is 3M a, more important to, let's just say, these are all being held in, in, in federal courts, right? Is it, are they more important to the U.S. economy than just to say, should we pay out um, these litigants as quickly as possible? What would the net effect be to the U.S. economy if, you know, you're, you're taking out pretty much the widget company that helps everything operate? Well, I don't, I don't disagree that that PFAS is going to be is a is a necessary product for a lot of industries. It really is. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's very necessary for the production of um, a lot of integrated circuit boards, um, a lot of uh, um, uh, a lot of semiconductor uh, design, and you know, as maybe as something as as broad as uh, you can't build a nuclear submarine without right. PFAS. 3M's getting out of the PFAS business. Yeah, they're selling that. By so, well, no, they're shutting it down. Mm. So uh, so the argument of, oh, well, if we put 3M out of business on this, then they won't be making PFAS, and then that's terrible for the U.S. economy. That doesn't hold water because they're already in the process of shutting it down. Um, if you look at, uh, historically, uh, the companies. Uh, you know, that uh, were in the asbestos liability uh, chain, um, over 70, 70 of them filed for bankruptcy. Um, a lot of them are as, you know, uh, pretty well-known companies with an awful lot of employees like Owens Corning. Owens Corning has, you know, currently has 19,000 employees. I don't know how many of them that they had 20 years ago. But they were still, or over twenty years ago, over twenty years ago, they're still put in the bankruptcy. Grace put in the bankruptcy. Johns Manville put in the bankruptcy. U.S. Gypsum put in the bankruptcy, and, and they and it didn't just because. I, I think there is also this thought that just because a company files for Chapter Eleven to uh, to have to reorganize its capital structure, um, and in the case of the asbestos liabilities that it was a way for them to get all of these people suing them into one pool that they can then negotiate into a trust payment. Um, I do believe that is going to be a similar issue with 3M, that there's these these payments are really going to start getting to uh, such a level and the liability, fighting the liabilities in court is going to become such a level that they're going, they potentially are going to have to file for bankruptcy to get them all into one negotiated pool uh that they can uh create a trust for uh that does not mean that the jobs at 3m necessarily go away it doesn't mean that the products that 3m makes go away it just means that current 3m shareholders and current 3m bondholders lose out 
the employees, as long as they're in a business that 3M wants to continue to be in, they still have their jobs. So um, I, you know, I, I don't think that bankruptcy courts um, uh, are necessarily in the business of, uh, first of all, this is not a bankruptcy court issue. This is a uh, trial judge issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, the trial judge, I, you know, I don't think they would say, oh, well, yeah, you poisoned a lot of groundwater in a lot of places. So, but we're not going to really hold you fully responsible because we don't want to put you in a chapter 11. I, I have not seen any instance instance in the United States where that's been a, a restriction. Okay. Um, I mean, those are all, those are all fair points. That's part of the risk of 3M, I think is, is which side uh, are you on as, as far as that's regarding, do you think that, you know, those payments up front are going to, end up putting them in the chapter 11 or do you think they'll be able to continue on and get a fair payment system to where it's not going to affect uh you know their ebitda to a great enough extent or you know affect the dividend which is the most important thing i think those those two things would be the most contentious points is that if they is is also if they cut that you know 64 year streak of dividends uh you know history would tell you of course the stock whether or not they stay in business uh you know in the current structure that it's going to fall. And that's kind of one of my points as well, is that if 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 a dividend were to be cut, um, you know, that's usually my only trigger point to, to be out of something. So well, I, I had actually written to that point uh, in mm -hmm. my piece that I, if the company is intending on spinning off their healthcare division, mm -hmm. which it seems like that is their desire, yep. that the dividend becomes very difficult to support. If they if they do that, the, the the healthcare division is is the cash flow engine of the company right now. It's it's two and a half billion of the eight billion dollars of EBITDA. And um, you know, let's assume that that's a relatively low capital intense business. So that two and a half billion of, of EBITDA is pretty close to two and a half billion dollars that's going to be coming off of operating uh operating cash flow. Mm -hmm. um obviously after tax or pre-tax um you know tax effect that it's two billion dollars um then you know the the company on a on a net basis right now is is pretty skinny on dividend coverage there it's probably right around four billion dollars of of of, of cash flow between operating uh operating cash flow minus capex is that a fair number uh, so I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the dividend being covered by free cash flow. Uh, it's pretty close, like ninety yeah, percent. So if if two billion dollars of operating cash flow comes off, that dividend has to get cut. Now, the dividend could then be paid. The difference in the dividend could then be paid by the uh, the, uh, the the spun off healthcare business. That's my assumption. Yeah, but that would be you, similar to AT and T. Right, but do investors look at the two companies and say, "Oh, like 3M didn't really cut its my cut my dividend because I got stock in this other business that's that's now paying me the dividend difference?" Yeah. I don't know. I, I I think that organically that potentially breaks the dividend, which would cause a potential sell-off too. Do you guys want to talk for investors about the timelines, uh, Cashflow Hunter? I know you run Catalyst Hedge Investing, so in terms of the catalyst or the opposite of the catalyst that may come from the news of settlements or, you know, finalizing appeals. Can you share with investors how you see the timeline or what you think the timeline um, is set to be? 
look, it's unknowable. Uh, I the the uh, the initial announcement uh, for the settlement was when it was June first uh, or second or something like that, where they said uh, that they had a tentative settlement and uh, they delayed the trial by three weeks, which was supposed to start till June fifth. So I, I would imagine something has to be announced basically this week uh, on the terms of the settlement in terms of uh, so that that's that's going to be one catalyst um, in terms of uh, getting the FD, uh, the EPA designation of hazardous material that is going to be um, a uh, a first quarter 2024 issue, I believe it could it could come a little bit earlier, but my sense is all indications are that it's going to be sometime around then. Um, and when uh, when would they have a potential settlement on the earplugs? I don't know. I, I think the uh, the the 3M CEO was supposed to be. Uh, at uh, the negotiations for was ordered to be at the negotiations for the um, the the settlement with the um, uh, the earplug litigants. Uh, I believe that was June, either June first or second, or the week before that, the uh, the Thursday or Friday before that. I'm losing my dates. Um, when does that come through? That kind of could come through any any day now as well um and then what's the last one um uh, and and then it's really uh oh and then there's a, an appellate court that is supposed to uh, decide whether the lower court which rejected 3m's patent uh petition to bank uh file arrow the uh the earplug manufacturing subsidiary into bankruptcy I would expect that decision to come through uh, sometime before the end of June as well. So there's quite a bit that could happen at the end of June. Um, and then the other the other issues, you know, when do when do states attorney generals that have um, seemed to have piled on in the recent weeks, uh, when do they start either having negotiated settlement negotiations with the company, and when do those when do those issues start coming to trial? Uh, I have no idea. Brett, what are the points on the horizon that you're looking for to um, reinforce your bullish thesis? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the timelines that that Cashflow Hunter is discussing are Mm -hmm. sound accurate. However, as someone who would be bullish on the stock, I mean, that's kind of how we would be sizing our bets, I think, is that if there's a positive piece of news, obviously, you know, throw more money on the pot. If there's something that looks like it's going to be more injurious than I originally assumed, then, you know, uh, I might hold back. I, I I personally, again, I'm a, I'm a long-term investor. I'm not looking to swing trade this thing at all. So like, I mean, for instance, when I, I picked up Exxon during COVID and it was trading below book value for the first time I ever seen it, uh, dividend on my cost was 10%. You know, it's a totally different situation than this. Um, I think. Sorry, which thing? Exxon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying, yeah, completely different. I understand. I mean, we're in a situation then, you know, oil was trading negative. It was a good opportunity to get in. This is kind of a similar situation. You don't really get any good opportunities without a lot of negativity surrounding it. So uh, if it holds to where the total, you know, litigation issues surrounding 3M, I think, hold within that scope of 
30 billion across the two cases. And if they get some sort of equitable payout uh, structure over a number of years, um, again, cash flow hunter, I understand, you know, you would look at comps and say that's probably not likely. Um, I would probably think that it would be likely just because I just, I, I have a hard time believing that the judges are going to want to put them into, uh, into a reorganization situation. But that's just my opinion, you know. Again, yeah, I've just never, I've never seen an, issue, an, an instance where that's been a consideration, really. I yeah. just have. Yeah, um, I mean. I, I don't just, think J&J was a similar a, a situation at all. Um, but why was there? Why, I think I just, it could happen. I mean, yeah, why, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, why would you think that they would be given such a long payout situation, um, you know, versus other companies that had smaller well, payouts uh, first, recently? We'll talk well, about recent history. Yeah, well, we don't, A, we don't know uh, what uh, what the plaintiffs were, were demanding. Um, you know, this could be a trust for people who don't have cancer now, but potentially could have cancer because mm-hmm. um, they use the product. Um, you know, the the all of these water systems that ha- are polluted now need to be cleaned up right now. Mm-hmm. The money needs to be spent. You know, it may there there will certainly be ongoing costs, but it needs to be spent. Um, not over 30 years, uh, that is definitely not going to be the case. I could see it, it being spent over five or 10 years, but it's going to be spent uh, to because these they have to get their water below four parts per trillion PFAS content, you know, to be compliant with the FDA regulations that are that are almost certain to go into effect, you know, you know in the next couple of months. So uh, I, I can't speak for what, I don't know the detail, and I frankly haven't looked that carefully at what exactly uh, the, the plaintiffs were asking for out of, out of J&J and what exactly their, their cases were. Um, you know, the, 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 the trust for the asbestos was set up not just to uh, compensate people who had died of asbestos at the time, people who um, were suffering from this illness from asbestos at the time, but also people who had exposure to asbestos but had not gotten sick yet. Um, so um, you can still make asbestos claims against the trust now. Mm-hmm. If you're if you've if you've recently gotten sick, I mean, I'll, I'll, look, a lot of I know someone unfortunately who died of of lung cancer. Uh, who had worked uh, at an asbestos plant, he died, I want to say sometime around 2009, 2010, and he had spent a summer working at an asbestos plant in, in the 60s. So, um, you know, it does take a while to, it can take a while to get, to come back and bite you. Sure. Um, well, whereas I guess the question has to be removed immediately. Okay. I, okay. I guess the question I pose to you then is, as far as the earplug case goes, and okay, let's say we know Let's, let's say we know it's around 10 billion for the PFAS case and that the payout is, we'll, we'll call it even shorter, right? Let's call it five years to, to fund that entire thing. Do you have any optimistic hopes that the earplug case would be less than 20 billion? Um, what, what do you think about that case as far oh, as- Oh, you think that it would be, it'd be 10 billion for PFAS and 20 billion for, for the- for the. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm averaging those two across, exactly. Oh, oh, I think, then I think you're way under, one way underestimating something. I, I think on PFAS, this the PFAS settlement is just one party suing 
uh, suing a 3M. Th this is just local water systems and municipal water systems suing mm -hmm. uh, suing 3M. It does not cover uh, states' attorneys generals that are suing the company for ground pollution uh, and uh, other water. These are water systems. This is drinking water. It doesn't include really a lot of other other liabilities that are out there. It doesn't include. Uh, there's a. I was watching because when the main attorney general sued the company, um, there's a high school that uh, the kids are can't play on the field and they can't drink out of the water uh, the water uh, fountains. And there's a nearby farm that the farmer is not allowed to grow, uh, not allowed to raise livestock on, uh, because of uh, of ground contamination. Uh, there's going to be personal injury um, lawsuits. Uh, we three of us very likely have high levels of PFAS in our blood. Um, and then there is not the uh, there's the 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 real headshot. And I argued this in my first article about the company um, is going, I think, is going to be the EPA getting the hazardous material designation on PFAS, which means that um, anything any place that has more than four parts per trillion um uh content of PFAS be it ground uh you know just you know ground contamination groundwater contamination not drinking water contamination groundwater contamination that will be designated as a superfund site in which case the EPA acts as as judge jury and executioner just as you know pay us um so I think that the PFAS settlement that is being that is was sort of announced not really announced um is probably only about 20 to 30% of the total liability for PFAS. I think that um, in a best case scenario, from what I'm hearing with the earplugs, that's going to be about a $5 billion liability. So if you ask me, you know, what's the best case for the company? Yeah, best case for, uh, for all, for both cases and, and your average number of years to pay out. Well, I don't know why the ear people would take a uh, a multi-year settlement. Uh, these are people who have hearing damage now. If you're in your 40s and you have hearing damage now, you want to get compensation for it now. Why are you going to wait until you're 70 to get compensation? Well, it, se it seems to me the game they're kind of playing is that they they keep trying to to bankrupt Arrow, right? But it yeah, keeps, and that's why, the, that's why well, I said the the that uh, enhances the settlement speed though right because i mean they see the bills piling up for the uh for the defending attorneys they they you know class action attorneys are probably going to get paid more than any of, of the people getting the settlements so they're going to see those bills piling up and see their pie shrinking i think that's that's a strategy i mean that's pretty common right uh no i, I think the thing that's that is um well yeah that that is common but that, that's not what's holding up the uh the, the ultimate settlement right now i think you know the company has it's been filed a petition to bankrupt the uh, the subsidiary uh, that was that was, that motion the petition was denied officially by the uh, the that the lower court judge last week. Um, it, it it was it was really it started the, the first denial was uh, in August of last year. They appealed the decision, and uh, there's in a it's currently in front of three appellate court judges, um, and. They should be deciding soon whether they're going to affirm or dismiss the lower court's uh, the lower court decision. Um, if they affirm it, then the uh, then the company has the choice to um, try to appeal it to an on bank decision, which means all of the judges in that circuit, all the appellate judges in that circuit, 
can review the case, um, but they have to, but the, all of the, the entire, um, uh, the, the judge, all of those judges have to agree to hear that appeal. I guess they could also appeal it to the Supreme Court, but I doubt the Supreme Court would hear that case. Um, so I, I would expect that if the bankruptcy is denied, um, which J&J's bankruptcy was denied, yeah. and it was J&J kind of announced a settlement almost right after they got denial of the of their uh, petition to, to bankrupt mm -hmm. the uh, subsidiary, I would I would expect there to be some sort of settlement. Um, and I my my sense is that a really good decision uh, would be uh, a really good settlement for the company it would be something like $5 billion or less and not much less than $5 billion, but that would have to be paid up, up, up front. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see why, uh, you know, if you have hearing loss because you fired a gun, that doesn't take, uh, you know, 30 years to metastasize in your system. That, that happens immediately, kind of. And, and uh you uh so i don't see why anyone would wait 30 years to uh to agree to get compensated for that yeah but even even let's say it goes over 10 years possibly right uh that's still i think a positive situation for 3m where they'd be able to maintain you know their cash flow their dividend probably they're going to have a lot of impairments going forward too less tax expense uh and you know gap earnings are probably going to look shaky if if all these things are going on and impairments and such going forward but i think if they can maintain the cash flow and maintain the dividend it still remains a very positive story but, but, but they kind of can't i mean we we kind of agree that they can't maintain the dividend i mean 10 years let's say they pay 500 million five billion dollars over 10 years that's 500 million dollars four million four hundred million dollars after tax um that alone by the way brings just that one liability um, which is, I, I think, a, a very generous payment stream and a low uh, liability on the on the earplugs. That alone would make the dividend only co barely covered. Yeah, they certainly wouldn't be growing it unless they can start really achieving organic growth. Which, as I pointed out, you know, these guys have done you know north of five billion dollars net of of uh, of acquisitions just in cash over the past couple of years, and they still haven't been able to grow their their uh, top line or or their margins. Um, and what else? Uh, well, my argument was just that the margins are are being, you know, influenced heavily by inflation. I, I think it'll be seen, you know, inflation being a big thing, especially if oil prices continue to go down. I'm not a fan. I mean, I am a fan of oil prices going down. But, you know, being Exxon, my number one holding, obviously that affects that. But if if those prices come down of, of petrochemicals and such, I would predict going forward that their margins would be enhanced just based on that. I mean, uh, it's you know I don't know what their what their uh, what the percentage exposure is to oil. Um, well, just plastics know, being a byproduct of oil, right? I mean, that's yeah. Kind of I mean, there's also the argument. I mean, uh, there there are a bunch of other companies that are in the plastics business. You know, if we're headed into recession, which you know a lot of their performance is already starting to show evidence of that, mm -hmm. um, their numbers are not going to be particularly strong on the on the top line. You know, maybe their margins improve um, because of lower oil, which is going to you know would be a a victim of a uh, recessionary environment too. But you know, this is to the extent you're you, you're betting on this company doing well on a from a, in its cyclical businesses. 
um, you know, I think oil prices would come down because we would be entering into some sort of economic slowdown. If we're entering into some sort of economic slowdown, all the cyclical components of 3M get into trouble. Uh, maybe the the healthcare business that has, to the extent it has, um, plastics um, inputs, um, maybe it would be a beneficiary, but all the other businesses would suffer. Um, and, and and one other point I wanted to make, um, you know, I, I think that the equity is is an interesting short on 3M. Um, but as I I think I believe Reina and I discussed in one of our interviews, the credit is a just such an easy um, short um, because you know almost it, let's say they have to pay, you know, $5 billion, um, you know, let's say they have to, devil's advocate, they have to pay $5 billion up front and $10 billion up front. That's $15 billion. That's two turns of EBITDA on their, on their, on their debt levels. All of a sudden their debt goes from one and a half turns to three and a half turns. So, you know, the, at the very least, uh, 3M is no longer a single A rated company it's a uh, you know it's it's it has the credit profile of a of a triple B rated company, um, and that wouldn't be the end of the liabilities. So uh, I think the bonds are just a layup short here. Brett, is there anything that would happen? I mean, I know that we've talked about all of these you know possible variables. What would prick the the balloon of your bullish thesis? Uh, the only thing that'll prick it for me is that if that dividend gets cut for a reason other than the spinoff of, of as Cashflow Hunter mentioned, uh, you know, the healthcare, I can I can tolerate that if part of the dividend goes to the healthcare. I keep the healthcare spinoff and I have both components. I'm collecting that. I mean, I'm a I'm a long-term dividend investor. I don't I don't long short any of my portfolio. I'm not I'm just running my own money. I'm not running a fund. So I'm just looking for opportunities where there's a very negative situation in like a, a Dow component like this or a dividend king or a dividend aristocrat. Um, these don't come along very often. And usually when they do come along, they're for a good reason. Um, so it, again, it's a risk reward thing. If if they can maintain their business going forward, they can maintain their, you know, the situation where they have basically an equilibrium between CapEx you know, and depreciation amortization. I mean, there's there's very few companies if you look through, and they're usually only the dividend aristocrats and kings where they have an equilibrium between the CapEx ongoing and the depreciation amortization. It's kind of like a moat, you know, they have to invest the, the capital outlay up front. They only really have to replace the assets that they're depreciation depreciating and amortizing on an, on an ongoing annual basis. A lot of companies have CapEx far exceeding that. Um, if that changes too, you know, if I start seeing capex far exceeding, you know, their their DNA, uh, you know, that could that could put some other thoughts in my head. Uh, but as, as it remains right now, I think it's just so undervalued as a as a stock as a company. Historically speaking, all the ratios, uh, it's it's just hard to pass up. I'm that kind of a person. If you call it catching a falling knife, I, I think that's fine. But uh, you know, I size my bets accordingly, you know, as a certain percentage of my portfolio, I'm, I'm willing to, to lose a portion of it if I have to, because again, the risk reward benefit, I think the reward is so much greater at this point with this price. Uh, that's just, and again, that's just my opinion. I don't want to influence too many people on that. Uh, I think you, you probably have it split down the middle at this point for the, the bulls and the bears. So this is not a stock where 
you would think someone would be irrational for being bearish. I mean, I don't think that's the case either. So I, I, I really respect uh, cash flow hunters points. And, you know, I, I've looked at that perspective uh, that this is an existential threat. The litigation issues surrounding 3M is, is definitely an existential threat. The question in my mind ongoing, especially if I'm comping it to what was happening with, with Johnson Johnson is just the fact that this is, you know, a, a Dow constituent. This is a company that's so important to everything that goes on in the economy that I just think that something equitable is going to happen for this company. That's my prediction. And all the ratios and everything on a historical basis are so cheap that um, that's the optimist in me. And that's just who I am. I'm a very optimistic person when it comes to investing. I don't, I don't, uh, I, I'm not, again, as I said, someone who does, you know, long, short portfolios. So I, I'm always looking at the optimistic side of it. But again, if that dividend gets cut, if, if, there's a lot of negative news that happens with the litigation uh, going forward. You know, I I would probably cut my position. Let me let me ask you something real quick, uh, Brad. Sure. If you don't mind. Um, are you at all worried that there's no organic top line revenue growth? Uh, um, that that I think I think 3M. Me personally, being that I I feel that they're one of those widgets company. They grow with inflation, right? And right, right now is different, that. though. Right, right now, right now, I think this this situation is different because, yes, there's there's massive inflation, but this is not one of those kind of like ideal Goldilocks situations. Raw shooting for two or four percent, et cetera. Maybe I guess two percent inflation is ideal, right? So, right, but we had out, let's 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 we can agree that there's about eight there was about eight percent inflation last year. Yeah, something. it's it's been bad. It's like it's and, like the, and the they they, they they weren't able to grow uh or get they weren't able to grow their top line in really any of their businesses in the in the first quarter um except for the the healthcare business which which grew one percent so i agree with you that it, it is an inflation it, it's a business that should grow the gdp plus type business yeah, yeah exactly so if if you have inflationary environment they're they're at least their top line should be growing with inflation and it, it didn't even come close. I mean, a lot of their, the top line of their businesses was negative. I, I'd also ask, does that perhaps indicate that they are under investing in their core businesses? And perhaps that if EBITDA is, if, if CapEx is the same as depreciation and yet you're not seeing organic revenue growth, perhaps CapEx is too low. Well, I would also argue that China has been, I mean, I, I have strong connections to China. Um, you know, I've worked there for a long time and, and I know the economy very well. They've been so shut down over the last three years, them being open again. And I know just walking the streets of China, I've seen several 3M distribution centers and such. That's that's a big market. Uh, that could have hurt their, you know, organic top line growth, just China being shut down, period. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I'm optimistic about that as well. And hopefully relationships with, uh, with Asia Pacific, you know, especially China in general getting better. Um, so I'm, I'm still, I'm still an optimist, but you're right. And, you know, if, if CapEx, if I start observing that, that CapEx is growing to an extent that, uh, you know, it's really outpacing DNA by, let's call it, you know, uh, 120 percent 130 percent you know that'll that'll be worrying as well obviously right that that's going to hurt free cash flow 
you know, just again, I'm, I'm just I'm not even going to bring in the the litigation issues and what they're going to be paying out, but just looking at them as as a business, they're they're the very typical, you know, dividend king aristocrat where they have that equilibrium there. They have a brand. Um, but I just think that the rest of the world, you know, especially China uh, coming back to normalcy will will enhance their business and their top line. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think the one thing I, I would I would come back with is a typical dividend aristocrat. Um, yeah, yeah, their depreciation is usually exceeds uh, capital expenditure, but yeah, it's close. There's also, right? but there's also organic revenue growth, and uh, and they there definitely should be some sort of revenue growth, you know, or organic or or just otherwise. If you've net spent, you know, north of five billion dollars just in cash and acquisitions you know, over the past, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, their safety, their safety and industrial business, right? I mean, that's their top revenue generator right there. Not the highest margin business, but that has to do with construction. They're, they're big into construction. Um, I think, you know, construction right now is tough. We know that there's that impending commercial. Well, right now it's tough, but I mean, last year it was gang, two years ago it was gangbusters, right? I mean, it was, sure, sure, sure. I mean, look at steel prices, steel prices went bananas. Yeah, um, yeah, you, yeah. Ne you never saw any of that type of growth in in 3M. True, true. I mean, well, yeah, I see the the total safety industrial business, you know, between 21, 22, basically receding by about nah, what is it? Uh, about 300 million or so. So yeah, it's, it's still I mean, China, I, I think that's going to enhance things. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to see a recession, if we see interest rates kind of start to recede as well. Uh, that'll bring some life back to commercial real estate. So I'm I'm hopeful for those things. Um, I think over time, again, their margins will improve also just from a perspective of, you know, uh, inflation not being as hot as it is. I think this has been a fantastically articulate and, and well thought out conversation. I have a feeling both of you would agree. I have a feeling that anyone listening to this uh, would agree um, I, I thank you both for contributing to that and diving so deep into 3M and into both of your thesis points. Cashflow Hunter and Brett Ashcroft Green, uh, if you have any final words, otherwise, I really thank you for this conversation. Uh, yeah, I just like to say thank you, Cashflow Hunter, for for being on here with me, having this debate. I mean, especially your your knowledge and detail of all the, the the ongoing cases and the history of litigation as it regards to this is 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 great, great for myself, great for the entire audience. Uh, and you know, I I enjoy having these debates. And again, I don't disagree with a lot of your your bare historical uh, comparisons here. I'm just the optimist that is looking for the uh the good deals and the falling knives so uh yeah i i I'd, I'd echo those points i i um i i always enjoy and uh, appreciate respectful um intellectual conversations you know no one's taking anything personally here so. absolutely Amen. absolutely um Amen. and um you know i uh my, the only thing i would I would say is, uh, this is not something that I'm like hoping that this company goes down as this monster. I, I just um, I I don't see uh, how I think there's there are a lot of there are a lot more risks this company than, than potential rewards here. And, and I also I, I'd like to reiterate that I don't think that if a company files for bankruptcy that that's going to go that the the company goes out of business again. The jobs are not necessarily lost provided that they're 
they're in businesses that the company wants to stay in um, and should stay in. Um, this is a, a reorganization to handle a massive liability impacts bondholders and shareholders. It does not really damage uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, en the enterprise per se. So the company will persist. Uh, but if it, um, uh, we'll see, you know, look, a lot, there are a lot of quirks in our legal system and a lot of things that can happen. And, uh, you know, perhaps I'm wrong. Maybe I'm way too bearish. It's, it's entirely possible. Um, you know, that's why I, I've sort of spread my bets out between the stock and the bonds. And I, I, the, uh, the, the, the risk reward on the, on the bonds is significantly better than it is on the, on the stock. So. Yeah, I think if the past few years have shown us anything, it's that anything is possible. But I, you know, and like you said, I appreciate informed and respectful conversations. That's definitely what we're trying to do here. Um, follow Brett Ashcroft Green on Seeking Alpha. Follow Cashflow Hunter on Seeking Alpha. He runs a group called Catalyst Hedge Investing. If you like what you heard here, you can hear a lot more of that. Uh, thank you both for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. Hope to talk to you both soon. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.